0: Welcome to Baylor Chapel, glad that you're here, did you have a good weekend? Yeah, you don't sound like you had a good weekend, did you have an okay weekend? You know, I, I still think that the spirit surrounding a football game and hanging out together and the fact that our guys played so hard, I, I think it's a great experience and a great place to be. We didn't, we didn't come out on top of the score this time, but it's still a really fun thing to do. And so if you see some of our football players around or if you're a football player yourself and you're in the room, um, well done and keep, keep pushing out. You're, you're giving Baylor a good name. So thanks for playing so hard. Um, yeah, you can applaud them. I want to bring attention to the video that just played. Missions week is next week, and so just keep a lookout. There are a lot of things that are going to be happening around campus and here in chapel. Uh, pertaining to that, so be aware that that'll be happening. Also, if you're a freshman and you think, you know, I haven't really plugged in, um, it was several months my freshman year before I really plugged into anything and really felt apart um, I just want you to know there's this thing called freshman connect that happens at the Bobo, and we've got a great group that show up there. Um, but it's not a it's not a clicky group; it's just an open group. So y- you would feel very welcome and normal walking in the Bobo Spiritual Life Center at seven o'clock on Monday nights and also on Thursday nights. But tonight. If you just think, you know, I really do need to plug in, and I really do need a group of people who know who I am and who I can know well, um, please go to Spiritual Life Center tonight at 7, and it's really informal. Um, I know that last week I was there with my son, and, who, who's awesome, as you remember, and we were eating um, ice cream Sundays, and it was really fantastic. So if you just have some few moments tonight at 7, and you feel like, hey, I really need to connect, then come over there and do that. Hey, I'm excited about chapel today. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest. Uh, we we always try to bring in the very cream of the crop when it comes to chapel guests and people who have been doing very important work, not only just important work in the name of of social justice, but an important work in the name of Jesus. And so today we have Jack Calhoun. He formally is John Calhoun, but he said we can call him Jack, so he's an informal guy. And so when you see him, you can go up and say, "Hey, Jack, how are you?" and He will respond accordingly. I want you to know that a few things about Jack that I think are important uh, before he comes to share with us. This is a great time for us to be together. Jack Calhoun founded and served as president of the National Crime Prevention Council for 20 years. He revolutionized crime prevention by shifting its definition to encompass building vital communities that don't produce crime via programs. That he helped, such as community responses to drug abuse, youth as resources, comprehensive community programs, embedding prevention in state policy. Under Jack's leadership, the National Crime Prevention Council became the nation's resource center for crime prevention and community building. One area that you're gonna be aware of is that Jack was appointed by the governor of Massachusetts to, po- to the post of commissioner of the Department of Youth Service. He was also appointed by the President of the United States as Commissioner of the Administration for Children, Youth, and Families. He oversaw programs that you know about and some of you were a part of, programs such as Head Start, Child Abuse and Neglect, Foster Care, Adoption Opportunities. While in that role, he created the Office for Families and the Office for Domestic Violence Prevention. He helped write and then saw Congress enact the landmark Child Welfare and Adoption Act. It's been said about this act that it's one of the three most important laws affecting children in the last 100 years. This is a man who God has used to do great things. Included among many of the speeches he gives quite often is a speech that he gave recently in Norway. He also recently addressed the Mexican legislature and lawyers there. He was the keynote speaker for the 20th anniversary of the San Diego Children's Commission. He was the closing keynote speaker for the National Conference of Family and Juvenile Court Judges. I could go on. And now he's here at Baylor University. Since you're in school, I'll tell you where he went to school. Jack holds a B.A. from Brown University, a Master's in Theology from the Episcopal Divinity School, and a Master's in Public Administration with honors from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He is technically retired, quote-unquote. But as you know, some people just can't retire, and I think Jack's one of these. In retirement, he's not only just completed a book called Hope Matters that I hope you'll pick up and read, but he also helped design, launch, and manage the 13 California City Gang Prevention Network. It's an honor today for us to get to talk about this topic with our guest for Baylor Chapel, Jack Calhoun. Welcome him as he comes.
1: folks. Good to see you. Good to be here. I'm going to start with a story. Uh, During the Clinton administration, I served uh, on the the Attorney General's Coordinating Council on Juvenile Justice, and they would often hold meetings in places where they could see and taste what was going on, and this particular one was held in Southeast D.C., And one of the people that spoke was a minister, working with kids out of his church. And he talked about mentoring. He talked about Head Start. He talked about recreation. And then, almost parenthetically, as he got up to leave, he said, we also go out into the street and get to know the kids by name. That floored me, absolutely floored me. When serving as Commissioner of Youth Services in Massachusetts, I remember a murderer saying to me, Commissioner, I'd rather be wanted for murder than not wanted at all. How basic to be called by name, that minister saying we get to know their names. We name our kids. It's love, it's protection. It evokes the God of Genesis, the God who names. Isaiah says it best, Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by name, thou art mine. Great social policy and great, great and it was Erin Jacoba who brought this point home to me. Erin's little, but as little as my daughter-in-law. Tough. She was a resident. Resident is a euphemism. She was locked up in the Indiana Girls' School. It takes a lot to be locked up as a young woman in Indiana. She was part of an experimental program I designed called Youth as Resources. About over half a million kids had been involved across the country. YAR says kids get to design the project they pick their issue, they design it, and if funded, they run it. So it's not by adults, uh, uh, to kids, but led by adults, it's led by kids. Would this work with kids who are really wounded, who didn't feel they had anything to give? So he tested it in the Indiana Girls School, and Erin's first project with a couple of her colleagues was to go into an institution and work with kids with ser- severe cerebral palsy. At my quote retirement ceremony several years ago, she turned to me from the podium and she said, "Jack, when I came into the institution to work with kids, they would fling out their name fling out their arms to welcome me. It's the only time I can remember anyone ca- calling my name positively. I thought, "Where has her name been? Truancy list, stubborn children list, delinquency list, police blotters, court dockets." And how many kids out there are anomic, without names, or who can't stand their names? How are they named? Who names them? Who claims them? The church does in baptism. You're a child of God. You are John. You are Ellie. And then often, at least in my faith tradition, they're walked down the aisle and welcomed by the community. And the message, the church is here for you. The community is here for you. The Jewish naming ceremony is central, as is Akika the Islamic naming ceremony. But think about it, friends, if we don't name our kids, who will? The gangs are good at it. The Wands, the Bruce's, the Mary's and Michelle's become shooter, high boy, lookout, needle, real names from the L.A. gang list. I run a 13-city gang prevention network and cannot do this work without feeling and tasting what's going on, so I happened to be, about six or eight months ago, in a car in Oakland with Billy Dupes and Jay Jimenez, two ex-cons who'd been clean for five years, giving back to their community, trying to keep kids, street kids, from taking the path that they took. So we're in a car doing a little trash talking, and I said, man, do I have the right clothes for gang work? They said, man, you have the wrong threads. And uh, I told them when I drove, Subaru, and they said, man, you got the wrong car, you need a lowrider, come on, get with it. I said, okay, if you guys are so good and so tough and you pull up in a street corner and you've got a guy in, hanging on the corner with 12 of his boys ready for trouble, what is your first sentence? What is the first thing you say when you get out of the car? And without a nanosecond's reply, Jay looked at me and said, hey, loved one. I said, what? He said, hey, loved one, or hey, nephew. Think about it. Doesn't it make profound sense? What's a gang member? Homie homeboy, home, family. It's a language of embrace, claim of the heart. A few nights after this late night experience in Oakland, I was keynoting the Massachusetts Human Services Convention, and these are folks who run programs for kids. They're shrinks. They're social workers. They're child abuse counselors. They run halfway houses. They're terrific, and I told them so. We need them to untangle the horror of sexual and physical abuse, of learning difficulties. But I ask them, where do we begin? Do we begin with, hey, delinquent, let's work on it, or do we start with, hey, loved one, let's work on the delinquency? Is there a you that is deeper than your wound? A you, a precious you, a God-loved you. I'm a lifelong program and policy guy who's been at the highest levels of government. But I don't think I would have framed it this way, loved one, call thee by name, had it not been for Maddie Lawson. Maddie and I served on a board together the California Wellness Foundation, didn't know each other, sat down to dinner, happened to be sitting next to her. Maddie, how did you get here? She said, Jack, I lost two kids to gang violence, but now I have 400. No other kid in my neighborhood will die. Having kids myself, to have lost a kid, I don't know how I would have handled it, but to Maddie, she turned that horrible, horrible pain into healing for others. And she did something else for me. She pried off my long-barnacled, long-covered-over faith that started me in the first place. Policy is not where I began. I began with Martin Luther King, whose spirit caught me in 1962, my last year in college, before the Great Society, before the war and poverty. And I joined that struggle, and my beliefs then emerging held that the god I celebrated is mud-spattered, engaged, bruised, wounded, but sustaining, saying, you're going to fall down, you're going to make mistakes, but you've got a spark in me, get up, follow me. My most vivid experience, and I won't dwell on this too long since time is short and it's Monday, um, I was working as a uh, semesters as a seminarian in North Philadelphia out of a church. We did recreation, we did Bible study, and we did a lot of political work, a lot of marching, so we were sort of the center. We got a call, an emergency call, a desperate hysterical call from a family uh, who had tried to immigrate, black family tried to integrate an all-white area in Folsom, Pennsylvania, right near Philly, and the house was being stoned car had been doused with gasoline and burned front lawn had been drenched with gasoline and was blackened what could we do what did we have i now quote from my book hope matters ourselves our bodies a little madness the certainty that we had to respond hardly thinking i grabbed a large cross and a handful of volunteers we were a pretty motley bunch most in our early 20s a few in high school we parked a few blocks away, and I remember hearing the roar. of The crowd sounded like a football crowd. I led, holding the cross high, and we had no plan except to start singing, which we did. Rounded the corner, and what we saw scared us. hundred people in the street, an arc in front of the house. Many were women in curlers holding the hands of their kids. Sure enough, three or four policemen sat calmly on horses, smoking cigarettes. A car, presumably the new owner, sat blackened in the street on cinder blocks. The mildest thing we heard was, nigger, go home. We started to sing, feeling the unreality. Then the feeling of unreality suddenly became mutual. The crowd stopped and gaped at this ragtag bunch, slowly parting to let us through. I won't go into a lot of detail, except I can remember the crunch of grass under my feet, and the crowd began to wake up that this was not exactly a huge conquering army, so they they began to throw stones at and around us, and the state police eventually broke it up. The next day we went over and talked to the family, and I'll never forget the young man who was trying to integrate that neighborhood. He said this, it's hate. But the hate hurts them. They throw rocks at themselves. It was Maddie who unknowingly brought me back to my starting point, to my faith, and this book, Hope Matters, the untold story, untold story of how faith works in America, for four reasons. To help counter the public face of faith, which is so often one of violence. To tell my personal story, three to to celebrate the stories of many Americans doing some of the roughest work in the country, grounded in faith, but not beating people up with their faith. And lastly, to challenge all of us. All of us. We don't hear the stories of amazing people whose work connects us. People of faith who pray not to be extolled in the sight of God, but to garner the strength to serve. Yes, there's a lot that faith has done that has resulted in blood the Crusades, Protestants and Catholics, 30 years war in Europe, Shiites, Sunnis, Hindus, Muslims, on and on. And yet, there is another story. The story not often heard, embodied in the lives of people whose faith is the opposite. Their faith reconciles, not divides, alleviates pain, not causes it, serves, not dominates. It's the other side of the faith story, how can I be there for my neighbor. Though grounded in faith, breezing, exercising it, they, the people in my book, tend not to proselytize, which reminds me of a story about college chaplains in a university in northern Michigan who felt that maybe, you know, if they were really going to test their faith, they would go out and try and proselytize and convert a bear. Well, they decided to meet a week later after doing this in a hospital. Father Flannery was first to report, his arm in a sling and crutches, various bandages, and he said, I started off with a catechism and that bear didn't like it. He slapped me around, but then I got out my holy water. I sprinkled him, Holy Mary, Mother of God, He's come, the bishop is coming out next week to confirm him. They turned to Reverend Billy Bob, and he said, Well, we don't believe in that sprinkle stuff. We believe in the Word. We believe in the Bible. I went out. I found me a bear. I began to read to the bear. He didn't want that holy word. I wrestled him up a hill, down a hill, into a pond. I dunked him three times, and he came out praising well, he turned to the rabbi who was lying in a hospital bed in a full-body cast, traction with IVs and monitors running in and out of him. He was in bad shape, and he looked up and said, looking back on it, circumcision may not have been the best way to start. <laughs> so I began interviewing people, and from the interviews came the book's themes, such as the one you heard that I opened with, and my, uh, Naming and Claiming. Another theme is mago dei, that we're all made in the image of God, that no matter how deeply buried beneath the grit, the grime, and the grouchiness, the Monday morningness of all of us, is the lovely, the unique, the amazing, the child of God in each of us. And this is, not, this is, this is absolutely central to the Old and New Testaments. One thing that repeatedly stuns me, friends, is just how hard you can be on yourselves. I'm too big, I'm too small. the co- well, coach will cut, cut me. My figure's not this. it's not that. I'm too dumb. I'm too smart, too, too too. You judge yourself so harshly. Which raises the issue of how we define ourselves. <coughs> Parental values? yes. DNA, yes. Government structure we live under. We're not a totalitarian system. Culture. Most of us are not wearing robes, how we dress. The economy, yes. Peers, yes. Put all this together. Does this stack of variables equal you? No. The Eunice, the amazing Eunice, transcends all of this. In each of us is that spark, an amazing Eunice. The Janes, the Ricks, the Marks, the Michelles here are so much more than the above. There's nobody like you. You're unique. You may look like your mom and your sister, even if you're a twin, but you're not them. Another theme in my book is the problem of pain. No one can escape pain. We will all have, or have it, cancer, divorce, drug-abusing friends or siblings, death of a parent, of loved one. One may or may not believe that pain is divinely ordained, but we each must decide what to do with it when it comes. Joe Haynes, Brooklyn's district attorney, runs probably what is the largest DA jurisdiction in the country, 26 stories of DAs. Interestingly, his DA offers office bristles with programs, child abuse and domestic violence prevention, mentoring, a connection with over 100 faith communities to provide tutors. And he won't hire you, even if you're bail law, unless you agree to tutor a kid. What's under it? Joe's father was a drunk who beat up his mother daily. Joe interprets this pain theologically. I was given this pain, he says, as an instrument of healing so others would not have to go through what I went through. So even if you're in pain, you can give, yes, pain. When you're down, depressed, angry, your boyfriend just dumped you, you didn't get into the grade you wanted, your family seems to be falling apart, you're going to want to lock yourself in your room, weep, shake your fist at the cruel world but you are going to do exactly the opposite. Through your tears and clenched teeth, you're going to call a friend who's hurting, you're going to call your uncle who's got cancer and you're going to pick up the phone and you're going to say, hey loved one, I'm here. I speak a good bit at Penn and I've been at University of Pennsylvania and I've been asked to share thoughts with Uh, the leadership segment of seniors. Uh, The senior class has this uh, leadership society. And I usually wind up giving them three pieces of advice. The first is nurture your humor. The world is a bit nuts. You can be too. There are serious fascists on the left and the right, Republican, Democrat, East and West. Laughter helps keep us sane. Make your brother, little brother laugh so hard until milk Comes out of his nose. Second, search out the kind of work you love to do and then get someone else to pay for it. Finding purpose is one of the major chapters in my book. It may take you three years or 30. It may be that your volunteer work provides you much of your ballast. Find work that satisfies, excites, and challenges you, work you'll never quite master, work that keeps you involved, learning vital. Earl Pacinger, then deputy chief of Los Angeles Police Department, and the chief of the South Bureau, reputedly one of the most violent pieces of uh, turf in the nation, somebody I spoke with. The sun was setting in Earl's office as I spoke with him, crisp uniform, the guy almost emanates ozone. And in back of him was a corkboard with pins in it, and I said, Earl, what are, those, what are those pins? He said, Jack, each one's a homicide. It looked like a porcupine. This map of South Central L.A. bristling with pins. I said, Earl, have you been sentenced here to pay for your sins? He said this, never, never. I'm paying a price, but it's nothing compared to Christ. Just think about it. Think what he did for me. Bloody beaten whip for me. What I am doing cannot compare. But what I'm doing is right. With the bill paid, I'm quoting now from my book Earl is free to serve. And even in the maelstrom, he reflects only gratitude. He said, Look what I've been given. Look what he gave me. Look what others have given me. Five generations ago, my people were slaves, they sweated in the fields. The baton was passed through the years. Some ran with no shoes and no food. My daddy ran in sneakers on a cinder track. I ran in college with spiked shoes on a smooth track. Because of them, I will pass the baton. My sons are waiting. I will not trip. I will not fall. I will not be discouraged. I will not be stopped. If I have to pick up the community myself, I will do it. Friends, the ancient Greeks a different understanding of blessing or purpose than those in the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Greeks believed that finding your purpose gave one a piece of the life of God, a privileged experience that the Greek gods had of living above the burdens and worries and cares of human life. One got to frolic on Olympus with the gods. Not so in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Purpose or blessing meant finding your correct path. It was not above Olympus, but through. It has nothing to do with the promise that you can and should transcend the cares of the world. The path can get muddy, as we all know. You can get hurt, but only through involvement, not separation. Through engagement in the world do we find blessing. Purpose or offers a curious and paradoxical freedom. We're told in the Christian tradition that his yoke is easy. It's not easy because it's stress-free. It's not easy because it's not hard. It's easy because it fits you. It's the ease of doing what you were designed to do. The salvation we're offered is not one that removes burden. It gives us the right burden. Real freedom is not found by doing less, but by doing what fits. Most of us are probably more like Laura Pearson, though. No? Laura was the photographer when my book debuted. Big room, National Press Club, quite fancy. Now, Laura was, was what I would describe as sort of a frou-frou photographer. Dogs, poodles, wealthy weddings. She came up to me in tears after the book debut where four of the people in my book spoke and had the audience literally in tears with their stories and what they were doing. And she said this, "'I've wasted my life. I'm shy. I've hidden behind my lens. I can't do what Tony and Robin and Alexi are doing. I am so ashamed.' I responded, "'Laura, your gift is photography. You are a photographer.' That's your blessing. Celebrate it. Keep doing it. But why not think about volunteering down at the homeless shelter or the Boys and Girls Club, helping them with a photojournalism or their brochure? So that's the other, and that was the third reason uh, that I gave to the Penn students. How can I be there for my neighbor? How and where can I give? Love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself is the heart. All else is commentary, assert many theologians. According to the theologian William Coffin, Descartes had it wrong. Remember Descartes? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. No, says Coffin, it is amo ergo sum, I love, therefore I am. So finally, it's the theological. theme shared by all major religious traditions, namely, love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself, and note there are three loves there, three, God, neighbor, self. If you don't love yourself, you're going to be no good to anybody. If you love yourself and stop there, you know, take your bonus and don't share it, then you've only done one-third of the work, and then you risk losing yourself and your neighbor. I'm primarily a public policy guy, not a biblical scholar, but I believe no one, no one expresses the fundamental truth better than Isaiah. He wrote about 3,000 years ago, long before Baylor, Princeton, Harvard, or the New York Times. I cite chapter 58. Now, this is so New York. I mean, this to me, the cadence of this verse is funny, but it's, the message is beautiful. The people are complaining They say we fast, another way of saying worship, and God doesn't listen. We bow down, we wear sackcloths, we contribute money. God doesn't pay any attention. So Isaiah just asks questions. Isaiah says, basically, you call this a fast. You think this is what God wants. You fast, and you beat up your wife. You fast, and then you underpay your workers. This is a fast. Then he says this. Is this not the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs, the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked, to cover him? And Isaiah's next sentence, though, friends, is the stunner. His next sentence doesn't talk about what you have done. It doesn't talk about the beneficiaries of your charity, the hungry now fed, the naked now clothed. He says this. This is his next sentence. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. Yours, not the beneficiaries. And he continues. If you take away the yoke and the pointing finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourselves out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then, here's another stunner, your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom will be as the noonday sun, and this, I love this last one, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring whose waters fail not. So, Baylor students, be there for your neighbor. Go out, be the light that never dims, the wellspring that never dries up, and thank you, God bless you, loved ones. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I want to invite you all to
0: stand for a benediction and also a prayer of gratitude for what Jack has
1: had to share with us and for his life and work. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful that you speak to us in so many ways, and thank you for the word that has come to us through Jack today. We're grateful for his ministry among us and others like him that help us to see beyond the smallness that we feel, the insignificance that we know in so many days, the cynicism that weighs us down. Help us to leave that behind, even if it's just for this day to commit ourselves to being peacemakers, your sons and daughters. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Go in peace.